السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمدا عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صلي وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So welcome to another lesson of QP and inshallah ta'ala today we continue with our tafsir of Surah Al-Balad uh, But before we do so just a brief recap on what we did last week So last week alhamdulillah we began with the tafsir or we began the tafsir of Surah Al-Balad And we mentioned how uh, the scholars of tafsir and in the early books of hadith and narrations have three names by which this surah is referred to. The first of them, and perhaps the most famous name, the name that we still use till this day, is Suratul Balad. Suratul Balad. And that is something which you find in many various books of hadith and various books of tafsir. The second name by which this surah is also known is by the entirety of the first verse. Suratul Aqsimu Bihadal Balad. And the third name by which this surah is known is the first portion of that first verse. So Suratul La Uqsim. So it is these three names by which the surah is referred to, Suratul Balad, Suratul La Uqsimu Bihadal Balad, and Suratul La Uqsim. Those are the three names by which it is known. And then we mentioned also last week the issue of revelation in terms of whether the surah is a Makki or a Madani surah. And we mentioned that the vast majority of the scholars of Tafsir were of the position that it is a Makki surah. To the extent that some of them even said that there is agreement or consensus upon this point. However, there were some scholars that mentioned that there is a slight difference of opinion, such as Ibn Atiyah in his tafsir, he mentioned that some of the some of them, he said, a group of people said that this surah is madani. And the issue that seems uh, or the, the, the reason why there is this difference of opinion seems to surround the second verse, uh, which we covered also last week. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَأَنْتَ حِلٌّ بِهَذَا الْبَلَدِ And you are a resident in this city. So some of them um, you know, said that, that it's, referring to, uh, it's referring to it being now, in the present, meaning that it's a Makki surah. And others said that no, it's referring to, uh, as we will come on to or mention in a short while, uh, as we do this recap, that it's referring to the conquest of Mecca. So some of those scholars who said that the Prophet was in Medina at that time, and that's referring to now that you're actually going to go back and conquer the city of Medina, then they said that it is a Madani surah. But the vast majority of the scholars of tafsir are of the position that it's referring to something which will take place in the future, even though the Prophet is Mecca, is in Mecca, he's essentially being told that he will come back and conquer the city once again. Either way, as we mentioned, the vast majority of the scholars of tafsir were of the firm position that it is a Makki surah. So we began last week, and, I, and there's a, a very shortly there's a, a research question that I asked you to look into last week, which was concerning the issue of entering into the haram, or entering past the miqat point, for those people who don't want to perform umrah, and whether they have to be in a haram or not. So if anyone came up with anything, you can like add that now, uh, as I'm just going briefly over the recap. So uh, when it comes to the first two verses that we covered last week, then Allah Subhanahu wa Taala begins with an oath. And he says, subhanahu wa ta'ala, la uqsimu al balad. And we mentioned the various different positions of the scholars because this type of phrasing or this type of wording in the Qur'an comes on a number of, of points. Uh, in, in, in a number of places in the Qur'an, it comes with this wording, an oath. 
لا أقسم بهذا البلد for example the beginning of surah القيامة لا أقسم بيوم القيامة for example فلا أقسم بالشفق فلا أقسم بمواقع النجوم there are a number of places in the Quran that Allah Azza takes an oath but the beginning of the oath is the word la and the word la as we said usually means a negation so some of the scholars were the position that the la in this context is to add emphasis it's to it's almost as if Allah Azza is saying verily or surely or indeed and then he's taking an oath by what he's taking an oath by subhanahu wa ta'ala and other scholars were of the position that it is a negation but it's negating something which the Arabs used to believe something that the disbelievers held the belief that they held Allah Azza is negating that belief and then affirming something else by taking an oath by it so that's essentially the difference of opinion that you have amongst the scholars concerning that particular point and the scholars agreed unanimously all of the scholars of tafsir that the city that has been referred to in verse number one that Allah Azza is taking an oath by is none other than the city of Mecca Al-Balad is the city of Mecca the city that has been referred to is the city of Mecca and then what we essentially have in verse number two is a jumlatun mu'taridah it is a a verse that is an add-on to verse number one it is not another oath the next oath will now come in verse number three inshallah ta'ala the one that we will begin this week's lesson with verse number two is like an add-on so Allah says that he takes an oath by this city and then he says then you meaning our messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam are hill in this very city and we said that the scholars differed concerning the meaning of hill some of the scholars were of the position and that is the majority they were of the position that the word hill in this context means that it is halal for you that you are free of blame you are free of sin that it is permissible for you and many of those scholars held that to be the uh, referring to the time when the Prophet ﷺ came and he conquered the city of Mecca even though Mecca is a sanctuary the Prophet ﷺ was allowed to go and with the, go in with the intention of fighting and conquering and so you are free of blame O Messenger of Allah it is halal and permissible for you to do this the second position that some of the scholars held and that's the one that the teacher of our teacher Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin ta'ala is the one that he chose is that the word hill means hal the word hill means whilst you are resident or messenger of Allah, you are a resident of this city. And that's to increase its honor, is to increase its status. That not only is it the best of places on the face of this earth, but the best of creation, and that is our Prophet also resides in this city. So it's as if it is honor upon honor for the city of Mecca. And then we mentioned last week and we concluded with the third position that Ibn Qayyim also mentioned. And he said that the word of the meaning of hill is mustahal that the people of Mecca will make permissible the shedding of your blood O Messenger of Allah some of the scholars took that meaning that a time will come and they will try to kill you even though you are in the Haram and that is also a correct meaning in the sense of historically we know that they did attempt to kill the Prophet they colluded to assassinate him even though he's in the Haram and the Haram has a sanctuary and the Arabs the Quraysh they understood that sanctuary of the Haram and they had generally speaking respect for it but on this occasion, they were willing to ignore that and to overstep that boundary and to transgress by attempting to kill the Prophet ﷺ. And so some of the scholars were of the position that that's what it's referring to and they will make it permissible for themselves to shed blood or to shed your blood or Messenger of Allah ﷺ in the city of Mecca. So that's essentially what we have in terms of, uh, in terms of those, uh, the recap that we did last week, those two verses. So uh, coming to the question that we had, um, I can only see one response so far. If anyone else has anything they'd like to add, please do so. 
uh, Hasiya says Imam Shafi'i, uh, his opinion is one may enter Mecca without being in the state of ihram, regardless of whether one enters it in a state of security or fear. Uh, Ibn Hazm, Ibn Shihan hold entering Mecca with ihram to be permissible. Being in a state of ihram is not compulsory for those who not intend Hajj and Umrah. Okay, so uh, when the scholars generally speak about entering into the state, into, into uh, the state of or in entering into the miqat, into uh, past the miqat without the state of ihram, that comes under a number of different headings, right? It can be a number of different situations. And whenever you're studying fiqh, obviously, and you're going into this, it's very important to have a very clear uh, understanding of what the scholars are talking about, because sometimes otherwise it can become confusing. So, for example, we have one situation where a person passes the miqat and they have the intention of performing hajj and umrah, but they pass the miqat without making ihram. For whatever reason, they forgot, um, you know, maybe they didn't like the fact that they had to put on haram so early, maybe they have visa trouble or issues and they don't want to be caught out, and so they're, they're, they're intending to make umrah, but they can't wear a haram until they arrive in Mecca, whatever it may be. There may be a whole range of issues and reasons as to why someone would do that. That's one issue, and that has its specific rulings, right? Because this person has the intention of making hajj and umrah. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is in the hadith of Ibn Umar and other than Ibn Umar radiallahu anhu and Bukhari and Muslim and other than that when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam stipulated the miqat points so he said for the people of Yemen they go to Yelamnam and for the people of Medina it's the Hulayfa and he mentioned all of those different types of miqat points that we have the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam then said hunna lahunna waliman ata alayhinna min ghayri ahlihinna mimman arad al-hajja wal-umrah those miqat points are for the people that live there People of Medina, that's your miqat point. People of Yemen, that's your miqat point. And anyone else that happens to pass by one of those points, even if they don't happen to be resident there. And that's why if you, for example, fly from the West, from the UK, from the US, from Canada, and you're going to Medina first, before you go to Mecca, you've passed a miqat point on your way to Medina. right? But you're going to make your haram from Medina. So now because you're leaving from Medina to Mecca, the miqat point of Medina is the one that you're going to use, even if you're not from its people. For those who have the intention of performing the Hajj and Umrah. So if a person has the intention of performing Hajj and Umrah and they pass by the Miqat point, that's an issue. And the scholars differ as to what that person must do. The strongest of those opinions, and Allah Azza wa knows best, is if that person is able to return to the Miqat point, it's easy for them or it's possible for them, then they must do so and make the Haram from there and then carry on. And if they don't do so, or they're unable to do so for whatever reason, then they have to give a dam. They have to give a, an expiation in the place of missing out something which they should have done, which was an obligation upon them. That's one issue. That's not the issue that we're talking about. The second issue, which can also become confused with the one that we're referring to, is someone passes by the miqat, and they're not in the street of ihram, but they don't want to go to Mecca. They don't want to go to the haram. It's not their intention. So whether, not, let alone, forget like, uh, you know, even wanting to perform Umrah or Hajj, they don't even want to go to Mecca, they don't even want to go to the Haram. So for example, someone who's going from Medina, right, and they go to Jeddah. Jeddah is beyond the Miqat point. If you're in Medina, the Dhul Hulayfa Miqat is on the outskirts of Medina. In fact, today it's considered to be part of a city. But in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, Dhul Hulayfa would have been the outskirts of Medina. Right? It would have been just slightly a short distance outside of Medina. In fact, from one of the Miqat points, Medina is the furthest one from the Haram. Right? It's the furthest one in terms of you have to be in the longest in the state of Haram when you're coming from Medina. And some of the scholars said that the reason for that is because it was the city of the Prophet 
and the Prophet ﷺ has the best of cities and therefore he has the longest time to be in ibadah and worship and in the state of ihram and coming closer to Allah and so on. But anyway, it is the longest one. But if a person passes by the Miqat of the Hulayfa from Medina, but they don't want to go to Mecca, they're not even going anywhere near the Haram, but they've passed by the Miqat point, but they're going to now Jeddah, right? For example, that's, that's where they're going. Then that person doesn't have to put on ihram. And Ibn Qudamah and other scholars said that's by consensus. That's by agreement of all of the scholars. The issue that therefore remains and the one that we were speaking about last week because we were speaking about that narration of uh, Imam Malik in the Muwatta where the Prophet entered into the city of Mecca for the conquest of Mecca and he was in battle gear. Right? Some of the narrations you will find and, and most of these narrations are in Bukhari and Muslim uh, you will find that some of them say that he entered and he was wearing a black turban. Imamat and Sauda. Another said that he was wearing a mighfar, he was wearing a helmet, like a battle helmet on his head. So, therefore, the issue here is if a person enters into the haram, or rather they pass by the miqat, they pass, pass, go past the miqat, and they're going to enter into Mecca, into the haram, but they don't have the intention of performing hajj and umrah, what is the ruling? Right? What is the ruling? The position of the majority of the scholars, right, the majority of the madhahib, so this is the famous position that you will find amongst the Hanafis, and, and the, there is some detail in the Hanafi madhahib, but generally speaking, and the Malikis, and the, the Hanbalis, and it is one of the two opinions in the Shafi'i madhahib, and the scholars amongst the Shafi'is differ as to whether this one was the main one or the other one, but the position therefore of the majority, we have at least three of the four madhahibs anyway, if not a strong position even in the fourth madhahib, their position is, that you must be in a state of ihram. In order to go past the miqat, you must be in a state of ihram. So they, whether you want to make hajj or umrah, you don't want to make hajj or umrah. Right? And this also has some detail, and, and this isn't going to become a fiqh class, but also there is some detail in this. For example, they differ, they, they differentiate between someone who goes for a regular purpose. Right? So someone who, for example, goes back and forth to Mecca all the time. Maybe, for example, they're a delivery driver. They're always constantly going into Mecca to deliver things, right? From outside of Mecca, they're constantly driving. Like, you have a lot of these people in in these lorries and and deliveries and so on. Or maybe, for example, someone doesn't live in Mecca, but their parents live in Mecca, their families in Mecca, but they're living outside, so they're constantly coming back every week, every week. Those people, according to the majority of the scholars, they don't have to make Umrah. They don't have to go into the state of Ihram every time. And some of the scholars said, no, they should at least once a year. So that they've done their Umrah once a year, and then after that, if they have to keep coming, then it's okay. We're speaking about the person who doesn't come for any other reason, like me and you, for example. Right? We go to, for example, Mecca, uh, we go to, for example, Jeddah, we go to Riyadh, we go to Medina. Now I want to go to Mecca because I want to pray in the Haram. I want to go and pray in the Haram, but I don't want to make Umrah or Hajj. Right? And you know, someone may ask, why would the person want to do that? That's a different issue. And clearly to go and make Umrah or Hajj, if it's the time of Hajj and you're able to, it's something which is better, right? And you go out of the difference of opinion, it's a safer, uh, a safer position in that regard. But just for the theoretical uh, case of someone who wants to go. So for example, you do have, even in our time, people that were living, people that live in Medina, for example. Right, people that live in, 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 for example, Riyadh, people that live in different parts of Saudi Arabia, or people maybe that live in the Gulf countries, Kuwait or Emirates or somewhere, and they just want to drive to Mecca, not necessarily because they want to go perform Umrah, they just want to go and they want to pray or they want to meet someone and they want to leave. Do they have to be in a state of Ihram? This is where you'll find the difference of opinion. The majority of the scholars, as I said, three of the four methods at least, if not even, and, and a statement or a position of the fourth one as well, which is the Shafi'i method, they say that you must be in a state of Ihram. And 
one of the reasons they say that is because of the um, because of the statement of, that is attributed to Ibn Abbas that he said no one should enter into Mecca except in the state of Haram and that is a statement of Ibn Abbas and they say that the Prophet entering into Mecca in Haumit and so on is because Allah lifted the sanctuary of Mecca for a part of the day so he entered at the time when the sanctuary of Mecca was lifted and therefore the Haram wasn't obligatory upon him that's the first position the second position is the position that is reported uh, as being the position of some of the companions in the Tabi'een, uh, such as uh, Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhum and al-Hasan al-Basri and, uh, and Imam al-Zuhri. And then from the famous madhahib, it is the famous position uh, in the Shafi'i madhab. It's the one that Imam al-Nawi said is the strongest position in the madhab. And it's one of the narrations of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah ta'ala in his madhab. And it's a position that was then chosen by the likes of Ibn Hazm and al-Shawkani. And in later times, in our times, uh, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti and Sheikh Ibn Baz, Sheikh Ibn Al-Taymin Ali Muhammadullah, many of the scholars took this position that it's not, on, it's not a condition, it's not an obligation. So if someone is entering into Mecca without the intention of performing Hajj and Umrah, then they don't have to be in the state of Ihram. And they based that upon this hadith that we just mentioned. The Prophet said these miqats are for those people and whoever passes by them, for those who wish to perform Hajj and Umrah. So therefore, if someone doesn't want to perform Hajj al-Umrah, then they've been taken out of this hadith. And they also use these hadith, like Imam Malik's uh, statement, uh, these these narrations from the conquest of Mecca and the Prophet and the companions entering, not being in the state of Ihram. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. And it was also the position that was chosen by Ibn al-Qayyim, this position. And it seems to be the position chosen by Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala, because that is one of his chapter headings, the chapter of the person who enters into Mecca without Ihram. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best but anyway i thought that it was a nice topic to look into because it was something which came we came across in our um, in our studies last week okay so <clears throat> let us continue inshallah we come now to verse number three and in verse number three allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will now take an oath so we have the first oath which is the oath at the beginning of the surah that allah just swears by the city of mecca and now in verse number 3, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take what is essentially the second oath of this surah. And Allah azawajal says, And the translation of um, Professor Abdul Halim is, I swear by parent and offspring. Mufti Taqi says, And by the father and all those he begot. And Sahih International, by the father and that which was born of him. And Muhsin Khan by the begetter, i.e. Adam alayhi salam, and that which he begot, i.e. his progeny. So we see that there's a um, that there's a slight difference, but generally speaking, they all seem to kind of agree. When Allah Azza says wa walid, right, we know that the word walid in the Arabic language refers to a parent, and walid refers to a child. Where you will find the difference of opinion here amongst the scholars of Tafsir is on two points. Number one is the function of the ma in the middle, the meme alif, what is its function? And as we mentioned now a couple of times, we mentioned it in Surah Al-Shams, in Surah Al-Layl, before that as well last year, in, in our QP lessons, that this ma has a different number of different functions when it's put into a verse or a sentence in the Arabic language. One of those functions is that it can be mastariya, right? It can refer to or it can mean that which. And another one, or another function that it can have is that it is nafia, that it negates something, right? 
And again here, this is you will find a difference of opinion as to whether the mahya is for mastariya, meaning and that which, which is the translation that all of those four translators chose, or whether it's referring to a negation, right? which is a, also a position of tafsir. That's the first point. The second point, therefore, then is that if we say that it's referring to that which they begot, so it's referring to a specific person, individual, and that which they begot, which again is the uh, position that all of the translators chose in their translations, then who is it referring to? Who is this person that is being referred to? And only one of them, only one of those four translators, and that's Mahsin Khan, actually pinpoints an individual. But this is what you will find. So let us take first of all the positions that said that it's referring to an individual. These are the positions that say that the ma in this verse, the ma means and that which, right? The parent and the offspring that comes from him, right? And that which they begot. The parent and that which they begot, the parent and that which comes from him in terms of offspring. That's the meaning of the word ma. This is the position of the first group. And then they differ as to who it's referring to. So of the first subgroup, if you like, of those scholars that said that it's Ma Mustariya, they said that it's referring to Adam السلام, and his children. Adam and his children السلام. and this was the position that you will find attributed to many of the early scholars of tafsir such as Mujahid and Qatada and Al-Dahak and Abu Salih. Uh, Abu Salih is also from the scholars. This Abu Salih is one of the scholars of the Tabi'een from the students of Ibn Abbas and Abu Hurairah uh, and others from amongst the scholars are from the companions. So Abu Salih, that it, when he's mentioned in the context of the Tabi'een, is normally this Abu Salih. is known as Abu Salih Ba'than, right, with the meme at the end, and some scholars said it with the noon at the end, Ba'than. But anyway, he's from the early scholars or from the scholars of the Tabi'een. So Abu Salih, Al-Dahak, Mujahid, Qatada, Sufyan al-Thawri, uh, Sa'id ibn Jubair, Al-Hasan al-Basri, Shurahbil ibn Sa'ad, uh, a number of the scholars of the Tabi'een. What of the position that it's referring to Adam السلام, and his children. So it's referring to Adam السلام, and his children. Not least because from his children is uh, or are all of the messengers and the prophets of Allah والسلام, and not least of, from amongst them is our own prophet So Allah is taking an oath by the city of Mecca because it is the greatest and most blessed of places and then he is taking an oath by the greatest of his creation and those are the prophets and messengers and that is why Qatada, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, وَوَالِدٍ وَمَا وَلَدْ قَالَ آدَمُ وَمَا وَلَدْ It's referring to Adam alayhi salam and his children. And this is the same position that was chosen by Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah, as we've mentioned before, Imam al-Bukhari, often in his positions on tafsir, he chose the narrations of Mujahid, rahimahullah ta'ala. And therefore, that's something which you will find because this is the position of al-Mujahid. Uh, Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, وَهَذَا الَّذِي ذَهَبَ إِلَيْهِ مُجَاهِدٌ وَصْحَابُهُ حَسَنٌ قَوِيٌ Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, said in this position that Mujahid and his fellow companions went to, it is a good and strong position. Because when Allah took an oath by Umm Al-Qura, which is the best of places and the best of lands and the best of cities, then he also took an oath by the father of all of humankind, and that is the Prophet Adam, alayhi salatu wassalam. And this was also the position that was chosen as well as uh, by Ibn Kathir, by Al-Baghawi rahimahullah ta'ala. And Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, أَقْسَمَ بِهِمْ لِأَنَّهُمْ عَجَبُوا مَا خَلَقَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى عَلَى وَجْهِ الْأَرْضِ Allah took an oath by the children of Adam because they are the greatest of Allah's creation upon the face of the earth because they can speak and they can think and they can express themselves. And amongst them are the prophets of Allah alayhi wa and then those who follow in their footsteps 
from the callers to the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And that is the position that you will find amongst many of the early scholars of tafsir. Many of the early scholars of tafsir took the position that it's referring to Adam alayhi salam. Right? Others from amongst them then said that actually no, who's the person that's being referred to here isn't Adam alayhi salam, but rather it is Ibrahim alayhi salam and his children. Ibrahim alayhi salam and his children. So from amongst um, you know, Ibrahim alayhi salam and his children, some of them said that's referring to Ismail alayhi salam because the context is the context of the city of Mecca. So which prophet are we going to most uh, attribute to the city of Mecca? Or which father and son grouping are we going to most attribute to the city of Mecca? That would be the prophets Ibrahim and Ismail alayhi salatu was salam. Another said, no, it's referring to Ibrahim alayhi salam and the son or the child would be our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam because again those two Prophets more than perhaps even Ismail Alaihi Salam the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the Prophet Ibrahim are the ones that come to mind and from the scholars who or the famous scholars who took this position was a scholar from amongst the Tabi'een known as Abu Imran Al-Jawni Abu Imran Al-Jawni he's a famous narrator that you will find in the books of Hadith and it's from the students of the likes of Anas ibn Malik uh, an, and it said that he met and saw a number of the companions Abu Imran al-Jawni took this position. And this is this seems to be the position that was chosen from the latest scholars of tafsir by Ibn Ashur. Uh, Ibn Ashur said in his tafsir, What is most appropriate in terms of the oath that is taken after the city, meaning the city of Mecca, is that the one that is being referred to as the walid, the parent, is none other than Ibrahim salam. Because he is the one who took this land first, meaning the city of Mecca, as a place of residence for his son Ismail and for his, uh, for his mother Hajar. And he is the one who therefore all of the children or all of the descendants of Mecca will come through. Right? So the Quraysh and the people that will settle in Mecca and are known to be the inhabitants of Mecca up until the time of the Prophet وسلم, their lineage can be traced back to none other than the Prophet Ibrahim. So these are the scholars that said that the meaning of is that it refers to the parent and it refers to that which that parent has in terms of offspring. And then they differ as to which parent are we referring to now. One of them said that it's or some of them said that it's referring to Adam and others said that it's referring to the Prophet Ibrahim. The second position now is that it's referring to or the ma in this verse is ma'un nafiyah. It's the ma of negation. So therefore, what we're essentially saying is that when Allah says, we're saying, and by Allah is taken oath by the parent and that which they did not have of children. The ma now is a nafiyah. So the child is being negated, meaning that they were parents and they had no children, meaning that they were barren, they were infertile, that they had no offspring. And this is referred to as being the statement or the position of Ikrima rahimahullah ta'ala from the famous students of, uh, of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum and some narrations even mention it as being a statement or the position of or one of the positions of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum and that is that it's referring to as they say kullu aqirin lam yalid every single parent that doesn't have a child and essentially what they're referring to here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking an oath by all of those great people or leaders or people of power and position 
and to show that they were in its essence weak right in essence they don't even despite their position and their power they don't have the ability to control their offspring they can't bring children from nowhere except by the permission of Allah Azzawajal. Allah Azzawajal is referring to them and the children that they didn't have as Sheikh Shanqiti rahimahullah ta'ala he said every great person that lives that doesn't have a child right and this is essentially what is the second position that it's a negation so either Allah Azzawajal is taking an oath by the parents and by the children that they have or is taking an oath by the parents and the children that they cannot have and each one of them what joins between them is that it refers to the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his ability jalla fi ula just as he can raise things up and honor them like the city of Mecca and like certain parents and children there are other people that he can also not honor by giving them children offspring because that is one of the things that everyone or usually most people want they want to leave some type of legacy in terms of their children and their offspring and their people that will come after them and continue in their footsteps but the position that was then chosen by Imam al-Tabari ta'ala, and it's the one that you will often find now and three of the four translations took it seems the position of Imam al-Tabari which is just to generalize this just to make it very general and he said Imam al-Tabari said that the strongest of these positions, strongest of these statements, is those who said that Allah Azza takes an oath here by every single parent and every child. Meaning that it's not referring to Adam salam, it's not referring to Ibrahim salam, it's not referring to Ismail or the Prophet wasallam. It is general. Every parent and every child. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's what he said. He didn't, he didn't specify or he didn't restrict it to a group of prophets or a father-son group of a pairing of prophets. Allah Azza wa said every parent, right? All parents. And all of their children that they had. And some of the scholars therefore said that his position would include humans and non-humans. Allah Azza wa is taken out by everything. By everything that can have children, that can have offspring, that can reproduce. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking an oath by all of that. And Allah Azza wa knows best. But that is the position that Imam al-Tabari chose. And as we know from before, Imam al-Tabari will often, when he, when he can't see a strong proof, right? When he mentions the different statements of the scholars of the Salaf, if he can't find a strong proof that points to one over the other. So there's no like, uh, you know, Arabic basis for it. Because the word walid isn't something which is restricted to a prophet or is restricted to, for example, Adam alayhi salam. Notice there, for example, other verses of the Quran that support that type of tafsir. Notice there's something which the Prophet said that this is referring to uh, Adam alayhi salam and it's not something which you will find very common uh, you know, in, in the hadith that was referred to in that way. And then you have obviously the differences amongst the scholars of tafsir themselves. They've differed in terms of their meaning. So some said Adam, some said Ibrahim. He says that basically what they're doing is they're giving examples. They don't mean to restrict it only to Adam, but they're giving examples of the best type of parent, right? The best type of forefather or father and the best type of child, right? And Adam alayhi salam being the father of all prophets is from amongst them. And likewise, Ibrahim alayhi salatu wasalam. So what he often does in those types of cases, Imam al-Tabri, his methodology is to just say that therefore, because Allah made it a general thing, we stick to it being a general thing, right? That is the position of Al-Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala and it is a, no doubt, it is a strong position, it is a strong uh, strong uh, opinion to hold and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. In verse number four, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues and he says, 
لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدَ That we have indeed created man for toil and trial. Right, that's the tafsir or that's the translation of Professor Abdul Halim. Uh, Muhsin Khan says, Verily we have created man in toil. Uh, Mufti Taqi says, Indeed we have created man to live in hard struggle. And Sahih International, we have certainly created man into hardship. And this is another one where you will find uh, that, that the scholars have different ways of expressing the meaning of this word. لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانِ Indeed we have created mankind. Right? That's very clear in terms of the Arabic. There's not really a difference of opinion as to what it's, what's being referred to here. But then we have the word fi kabad. What does kabad mean? Right? So Imam Al-Qurtubi, before we continue, he says, and here we have the jawab al-qasam. So this is the response to the oath. Right? As we've said before, when Allah Azza takes an oath, there must be a response for the oath. Why is it that Allah Azza has taken an oath? So when you say, for example, I swear by Allah, or I take an oath by Allah, why do you take an oath by Allah? What is it for? That is called in Arabic the jawab al-qasam. So he says, qasam wa And Allah here has now stopped taking an oath. He took an oath in the first verse, the third verse. The fourth verse tells us why he took an oath. And that is to show the situation of man, the reality of humans. Right? And this surah speaks about human reality or human nature and how they can either excel and how they can either uh, uplift uh, uplift themselves or how, how they will either, uh, if not uplift themselves and if not excel, then they will do the opposite and they will become from the extremely low. Right? This is the whole kind of theme and central message of the Surah, Surah Al-Balad. And Imam Qurtubi says, and Allah takes an oath by that which he considers worthy of taking an oath by, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ibn Ashur says, the word insan here, when Allah says, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانِ The word insan here is referring to the whole race. So when Allah says that indeed we created man, meaning humans, right? all of the race of humans, and this is the position of the majority of the scholars of tafsir, and he says, and this is what seems to be more apparent from the verse and its context as well. But some of the scholars of tafsir uh, went to the position that actually is referring to a single individual. right? And that doesn't mean that it's restricted to that person, but it means that it's referring to them first and foremost, and then obviously other people are included as well in the generality of the meaning of the verse. But some of the scholars said that it's referring to a, a single individual. And from amongst uh, the people that went into that type of, of, of uh, detail uh, is Ibn Atiyah in his tafsir. But Ibn Ashur says that some of the scholars said that actually this is referring to a group of, uh, a single individual by the name of Abu al-Ashad. Abu al-Ashad, or in some narrations he is referred to as Abu al-Ashaddain. And his name is Usaid ibn Kilda al-Jumahi. This is the man who lived in the time of the Arabs, right? Around the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi And he was known to be extremely strong. And he was known to be extremely, uh, you know, powerful. And he would come and he would put other people down. And he would like wrestle them and put them onto the ground. And he would put his foot over them and no one could move him. And he was someone who was extremely strong and, and, and had a lot of physical strength. And he was also known for his enmity towards the Prophet ﷺ. And just as a slight tangent, the tribe that he comes from is from the tribes of Quraysh. So Quraysh, as we know, is a massive tribe and they have many different like families and many different clans that come from Quraysh. So you have, for example, the tribe of the Prophet ﷺ, Banu Hashim, and then Banu Muttalib. And then you have the likes of Banu Makhzum and Banu 
Banu Umayyah and all of these are from the different clans and families that make up the Quraysh. From amongst those families and clans is this tribe known as Al-Jumahi, Banu Jumah. And there are some famous companions that come from this tribe. Right, One especially is extremely famous. So I'm going to put this question out there now if anyone knows of the name of that companion that's well known. And he's mentioned a number of a hadith. And he was from the senior companions and from the early Muslims to accept Islam that also came from this particular uh, tribe of Quraysh. Then let me know inshallah ta'ala in the chat box something which you can look into. Uh, if not, then remind me and inshallah I will tell you. So what is this referring to? So this word kabad, what is it referring to? And we take the position obviously therefore that it's general, that it's not restricted to this man, Abu al-Ashaddin, but rather it's something which is generally speaking about humankind and human nature, that Allah created them in al-kabad. What is kabad? And Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that the word kabad in the Arabic language refers to a shidda, refers to something which shows that there is strength in it, right? And that's why the Arabs usually say that تَكَبَّدَ Leban, right? The milk has become strong, meaning that it's almost becoming, uh, it's turning, it's becoming thick, right? It's something which is, which, is, which, is, which is becoming stronger when it's left out. That is called kabid. And from it is kabid. The word for the liver in the Arabic language is kabid. And it's referred to as kabid because in it you have blood that has congealed and has become strong, right? And that's essentially what it's referring to. So that's the linguistic meaning. But what is it referring to here in this particular verse? The first position is that it's referring to the difficulties of the dunya and the akhirah, right? The difficulties that a person faces in the dunya that some people will face in the akhirah. And this is the position of the famous statement of Al-Hasan al-Basri, rahimahullah ta'ala. And some of the scholars refer to it as being the position of Sa'id ibn Abil Hassan. And Sa'id ibn Abil Hassan is the brother of Al-Hasan al-Basri. Right, so you have Hassan al-Basri was a famous scholar. He had a famous scholar from his brother. Uh, his brother was also a famous scholar and his name was Sa'id. His name was Sa'id. So you have Al-Hasan al-Basri and you have Sa'id al-Basri alayhima rahmatullah. They said that it's referring to the difficulties of the dunya. And his statement, Al-Hasan al-Basri, whether it's him or his brother, that statement is a generic statement that if you actually think about it as we go through all of these statements now of the different scholars and the different wordings, this kind of like is a catch-all. It brings it all together. It's referring to all of the hardships that a person, all the toiling and the difficulties that a person goes in, through in this dunya. That's essentially what he's saying, rahimahullah ta'ala. Uh, Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that this verse, verse number four, is jawab al-Qasim. It is the response to the oath. And the position as to what it means, he said that some of the scholars said, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَ بْنَ آدَمَ فِي شِدَّةٍ وَعَنَاءٍ وَنَصَبٍ That indeed we created the son of Adam, in difficulty, in toil, in hardship. That's what it's referring to. And he said that this is the position of Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhum and Mujahid and Al-Hasan and Qatada alayhim, rahmatullah. Mujahid said, fi kabad, nutfatun, thumma alaqa, thumma mudghada, thumma mudghat, mudghatun yatakabadu fil khalq. Mujahid said that a person is created from a drop of sperm and then an alaqa, a clot, and then a mudgha. All of this, this person uh, passes through difficulty and difficulty in terms of their development from the very beginning as they come and approach their birth as Allah Azza wa Jal says in the other verse he says he continues Allah Azza wa Jal says that his mother carried him in difficulty and she gave birth to him in difficulty and Mujahid says but it doesn't just stop there but she suckled him 
or her in difficulty and their whole life is one that they will often face within it difficulties. So that's the first position, the first or the first uh, you know, wording or tafsir that is given to the meaning of the word kabad. Imam al-Tabiri ta'ala says, and then other scholars said that the meaning is He was created, man was created in such a way that nothing is created similar to him. There is no other creation of Allah that is similar to the human creation. And that is the position of Al-Hassan and Ikrima alayhim rahmatullah. And yet others from amongst the scholars said, بَلْ مَعْنَى ذَلِكَ أَنَّهُ خُلِقَ مُنْتَصِمًا مُعْتَدِرَ الْقَامَةِ That Allah created man upright, standing, right? Upright. That is the way that Allah created them and that is referred to as being one of the statements of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma, but also Ibrahim al-Nakhai and al-Dahat and Abu Salih. They were also of the position that that's what it's referring to. And if you think about this, the first two or three wordings that we have, whether it's al-Hasan al-Basri, that it's all of the difficulties of the dunya, or whether it's, for example, the uh, the one that we mentioned of, of Ibn Abbas and al-Hasan, the first position that it's referring to toil and trial and, and tribulation, and difficulty and hardship, or whether it's the other statement of al-Hasan al-Iklima that it's referring to human creation uh, in the way that they created, all of them are kind of similar. But then we have this other position now of Ibn Abbas and alongside him Ibrahim and Nakhay and Al-Dahak and others from the scholars of Tafsir that it's not referring to the hardship that a person faces but rather that it's referring to their actual physical creation that they were created in an upright form standing on two legs and that's what it means Muntasiban Mu'tadir Al-Qama that they're standing and they're in an upright form that is what's referred to in terms of the meaning of Al-Kabid or Al-Kabid and that's because they say al-kabad from the meanings of that word is al-istiwa'u wal-istiqama. It is to be upright and be straight. And that is the meaning of this verse, right? That is the meaning of this verse. And this is the one that you will find some of the scholars mentioned within their, uh, within their tafasir. Uh, Shaykh Abdurrahman ibn Nasr al-Sa'di, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said the meaning of this verse is that we have created man in the best of form and in the best of fashion. And so that this person can go and deal with the many difficulties that they will have to face and at the same time thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the many blessings that he has bestowed upon them. Right? And so Shaykh Abdurrahman ibn Nasr al-Sa'di is essentially bringing those positions together. And if you think about it, um, that is a good position to take. And Imam al-Tabari said, after mentioning one of these different positions, he said that the best of those positions, or the strongest of them rather, is that the meaning of kabad is that the meaning of this is that man is created with test and difficulty and hardship and they have to try to overcome uh, over, overcome and they and their life is full of overcoming those trials and challenges and difficulties that they are faced with and he said and the reason why i chose this to be the strongest of the positions is because that is the one known meaning of the word kabad in the arabic language that refers to difficulty it refers to toil and hardship and trials and tribulations. Um, Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala has a very nice statement regarding this and he says that if you think about it man or humans their whole like life cycle and even after their death is one that is full of challenges and hardships. So he says rahimahullah ta'ala in his tafsir he said that the first thing that the child faces as soon as they come out right let alone what takes place beforehand in the womb but as soon as they are born the first thing that they have to face is the cutting of the umbilical cord 
and then the difficulties that come in those first early moments, right? Those first few, and remember, like historically, that would have been the most difficult, fragile moment for a new child, a newborn baby, is those first few moments, those first few hours, maybe the first couple of days that that child is being born. It's an extremely delicate time, especially before when, you know, before all of this modern technology and medicine that Alhamdulillah we have now, that would have been extremely difficult. And then he says, and then after that, that person or that child has to go through the difficulty of breastfeeding and suckling. And if they're unable to feed, especially historically again, if they were unable to feed, then that child would die. And then later on, that child has to grow teeth and they have to learn to speak and they have to learn to eat food. And that is more difficult than just simply suckling from their mother. And then, for example, if it's a, a male, they have to be circumcised and then they will have difficulties and they will have illnesses and they will have pain and they will have problems throughout their life. And then when they grow up, they have to go and figure out how to study and how to learn. And they go to a teacher and they have to figure out how to deal with all of the problems of education, all the difficulties that that brings. And then later on, that person has to go and find a job and find income and then they have to try to get married and they have to try to have children and then they become busy with their children and the trials and tribulations and the difficulties that sometimes that can bring and then if they have people that work for them or they have for example grandchildren then for example building their home and finding a place to live all of that and then by the time they deal with all of those problems before they know it a person becomes old and they become infirm and they become fragile and they become frail and then it becomes difficult for them to walk and difficult for them to ride. And so he says that all of this, with all of the other difficulties that a person has, from you know the simplest to, to the most difficult, from a person having pain in their head and pain in their ear and pain in their tooth, all the way to the difficulty of dealing with wealth and all of its issues and dealing with family and all of its issues that it can bring. All of this life is full of one challenge after another challenge after another challenge. And he says, وَلَا يَمْضِي عَلَيْهِ يَوْمٌ and rarely does a day pass except that you find in it some type of difficulty and some type of challenge that a person has to face. And then he says, and after all of that, then a person has to go through death and the questioning of the angels in the grave and then the punishment or the, 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 the darkness of the grave that a person will be put through and then the resurrection and then standing before Allah and being held to account and then finally knowing whether they're going towards Jannah or towards the fire. And that's why he says that Allah Azza wa Jal when he says, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدْ Mankind is constantly in toil and turmoil. فَلَوْ كَانَ الْأَمْرُ إِلَيْهِ لَمَخْتَارَ هَذِهِ الشَّدَائِدِ If a person had a choice, they wouldn't choose any of those difficulties in this life. And he says, and that is from the greatest signs, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who creates. And the greatest way to overcome these challenges is by turning back to him. Subhanahu wa ta'ala He is the one who decreed all of these different states and all of these different stages in his life cycle. So let him therefore obey him subhanahu wa ta'ala in order to reach salvation. And I thought that that was a very nice statement of Ibn Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala. Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah essentially uh, joining up or reconciling between these two main positions that we have in the word kabad. So when Allah Azza wa Jalla says, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدْ Indeed, mankind was created in kabad. We have the position that says that it's referring to a person's almost like character, that they're, they're, they're going through difficulty, they're going through toil and turmoil, that it's referring to those types of issues that a person is facing, as Al-Qutubi Ta'ala said, from the moment that they're born up until the moment that they die. Life is full of challenges, life is full of difficulties, life is full of one problem after another problem after another problem, right? And that's something which you will find 
uh, you know, very common. Like, I, I doubt there's a there's like a person who would disagree with that fundamental point. And yes, some people have it easier. Some people have it more difficult. Some people are better equipped and better able to deal with those challenges, and other people not. But we are referring not just to physical challenges as well, but also spiritual challenges, the challenges of a spiritual nature that a person has to face and has to overcome in terms of the iman, in terms of the whisperings of shaitan, in terms of the temptation of of sin, right? And and that's something which you which you find, uh, you know, with, within uh, many many different realms and many different positions. Um, uh, and that's why the, there's a famous poem by one of the Andalusian scholars. Uh, it's a poem that he wrote. His name is Abu al-Baqa al-Andalusi. He wrote this when the Muslims were losing Andalus. Uh, after like it was, they were on the verge of losing these great cities and this whole empire that they had built in the area of southern Spain and, and northern Africa, that whole area that they were losing. And he says, and it's a very beautiful poem in which he basically laments the loss of, uh, of, of, of Al-Andalus. And he says, Everything that is complete must then become deficient. So don't let a person become deluded by the good life that they have. You may have a day or two or a month or two of goodness, but sooner or later there will be a challenge and a calamity that is very close whether it's the loss of someone that you love, or an illness that afflicts you, or poverty that comes, or one issue or another. Don't let the comfort of life lead you to the expectation, and this is unfortunately something that is very common, that we think that life, just because it is comfortable today, should always be comfortable. Muslims often live now in the anticipation or the or the you know mentality that life should be easy for them. Whereas in fact we know from the text of the Quran and the Sunnah that for the believer, let alone for everyone, but especially for the believer, the mindset is that this is a life of test and trial. So therefore you shouldn't expect ease and comfort. In fact the default position is that it's difficulty and test and trial and that the actual ease and comfort inshallah comes by Allah's blessing and His mercy in the next life. That's where there's eternal bliss and eternal joy and eternal happiness. And so don't become... Don't become someone who is deluded. Shaitan comes and he makes them deluded by just the beauty or the ease of life that they have. It means that most likely if they're in that situation that there's a problem in terms of them not working hard enough for the akhirah or putting their, uh, you know, lifting up their foot off the pedal in terms of working for the next life. He said, in my experience, all of this stuff comes around. What goes around comes around. One day is for you and another day is against you. One day is a day of happiness and the next day is a day of sadness. One day you're healthy and the next day you're sick. Right? And if you're happy one day you will have many days or if you're happy for a time you will have many times in which you are extremely sad. And it goes on, it's a very nice poem that you can find uh, on the internet and so on. But anyway, the point is that this is the general thing that we have. Right? And so you have that position of the scholars of tafsir who said that it's referring to those types of issues. And then you have the other position of those scholars who said that it's referring to the physical, the physical uh, ability of a person or the physical form and creation of a person. Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala says that we reconcile between them. He says that it's actually the same thing, that they're referring to the same thing. And that's because the way that we reconcile them is that the way that man is best equipped to deal with the challenges and the trials and the toil and the turmoil that they face is in the way that Allah created them in that physical way. 
So the fact that you can stand gives you the ability to have the strength to go and to be able to overcome the challenges that you have. And that's why some of the scholars of Tafsir refer to that. Right? That's what they refer to because that is the overcoming of the challenge. Some of the scholars refer to the first part which is the challenge and the toil and the turmoil. Other scholars of Tafsir refer to the way that you overcome that challenge and turmoil. And that is that just because you go through difficulty doesn't mean that Allah left you without an answer, without a solution. But rather Allah gave you the skills and the ability to overcome them in the way that he created and fashioned you subhanahu wa ta'ala whether that's physically in terms of your body or whether that's intellectually in terms of using your mind and your brain or spiritually in terms of using your heart and your iman and your soul and so that is a beautiful way of bringing that all together that Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala mentions and that's why I mentioned that statement of Shaykh Abdurrahman al-Sa'adi rahimahullah ta'ala because he also does the same that Allah Azzawajal created you in the best of forms so that you can overcome the most difficult of challenges and so essentially we bring those two positions together to a nice conclusion. Um, and inshallah ta'ala, I think with that we will come to the end of today's lesson. So just going back to that point that I mentioned before uh, concerning that tribe of Banu Jumah. So we said that man that some of the scholars refer to, Abu Lashaddain, came from a tribe, the tribe of Jumah and the companion whose name that I was looking for, that's also from that clan of Quraysh, was the famous companion Uthman ibn Mad'un, rahimahullah ta'ala, Uthman ibn Mad'un radiyallahu anhu from the early Muslims. He said it is said that he was from amongst the you know after the first ten or dozen, he was from amongst the next batch of people to accept Islam, and he was someone that was extremely beloved to the Prophet He died a few years after the conquest, uh, after the Hijrah to Medina, and some of the scholars even said that he was the first companion to be buried in Baqir, first companion to be buried in Baqir, and he's the one. It is said that the Prophet when he heard of his death, he began to cry. And he came and he kissed him upon his forehead. And a number of hadith that speak about Ma'asha radiallahu anha, when she was asked why, why the companions or sometimes they pray a janazah in the masjid, she said, because I saw the Prophet pray over Uthman ibn Mad'un in the masjid radiallahu anha, meaning his janazah. And he was the one that the Prophet when he was buried, asked for someone to bring a stone so that he could place it on his grave. So he said, so that I may know the grave of my brother. Right. So he was someone was extremely close to the Prophet and someone that the Prophet loved greatly and he was from the early people, the early companions to pass away in Medina and, the, and as I said some of the scholars said that he was from amongst the first if not the first to be buried in the graveyard of Medina in Al-Baqir and Allah knows best but anyway that's the person he's also from the tribe of Jumah which is from the clans of Quraysh okay so inshallah with that we will come to and end today bismillah ta'ala jazakumullah khairan for attending and inshallah ta'ala i will see everyone next week wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh